You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'll be talking about data storytelling with Shirley Wu, co-author of the book Data Sketches and instructor for Frontend Masters. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com jobs. And now, data storytelling. All right, we're joined by Shirley Wu today to talk about storytelling. Shirley, you want to just, uh, I don't know, introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, hello. Thank you so much for having me here, Richard. Uh, my name is Shirley Wu. My former self-made up title was, uh, I think, independent data visualization designer and developer. And that's just because I used to work freelance with clients to tell visual stories with their data. And because I worked for myself, I had no idea. Like every time somebody's like, what's your title? And I'm like, I have no idea. Let me just make up something that seems to <laughs> say what I do. And now I am in grad school at a program that merges art and technology. And I'm learning how to make art with all of the skill sets I have right now. And also more, I guess, in like hardware and more different sort of coding. It's been really fun. Very cool. So in, in your data viz experience, I just want to give people a little more background. Any clients uh, or, or maybe organizations you may have worked for for data viz that we may have heard of? Oh, <laughs> thank you for the prompt. Uh, I think <laughs> the first piece that I worked on that really, I think, got a lot of people's attention was I did an article for The Pudding that was called An Interactive Visualization of Every Line in Hamilton, which was really <laughs> like a, it was I visualized the characters, lines, and relationships, and like themes throughout the whole musical. And it was a visualization of literally every line. And then another one that maybe people might have come across is that I worked on a piece with my really good friend, Nadi Bremer, called Bust Out with the U.S. Guardian team. And that article was like this really intense kind of investigative journalism piece about how different American cities actually buy bus tickets to relocate their homeless population elsewhere. And there's like a myriad of reasons for this. And we supported them with, I think, five different data visualizations to kind of help support the story. Recently, I co-authored a book with Nadi called Data Sketches. So if you're interested in seeing how custom data visualizations are made from like start to finish, from the data collection all the way to the coding, the book has 24 projects and documentations. Nice. Yeah, we'll, we'll have links to all these uh, in the show notes. Cool. So, all right, we want to talk about data and storytelling. So why don't we start with just talking about, obviously, data is something that matters to humans. Storytelling is something that matters to humans. But let's talk about sort of like how they matter and what is the role of stories to humans? What's the role of data to humans? Because I would say that they're, they're not innately separate, but I wouldn't immediately think of connecting the two, you know, when I think of those independently. So what do you think? What do, what do you think is the role of stories to humans and what's the role of data to humans? Yeah, this is such an interesting question. I don't think I've ever gotten it in this flavor before. So I think the the easier part of the question to answer is, you know, what's the role of stories to humans? And I think that one we innately understand quite a bit. There's all of these different oral histories that have been passed down through history. There's written histories. And I think it's just a way not only to record things that have happened in our lives, but also to kind of to communicate the things that have happened in our lives. But more importantly, I think stories carry an emotional arc that when we tell that story to someone else, a lot of times that other person can latch onto the story because they connect to it in a certain way. So I think stories are extremely important in our lives. I think they're, they kind of like add I don't know. They, I feel like they, I personally am a, like a very much a stories sort of person when people are like, are you stories or systems? And I'm like, I think I'm a stories person. Like I love narratives. And I think it's kind of like what adds like a flavor to our lives. That's a weird way to say it. But uh. yeah. <laughs> I, I know what you mean, though. I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's definitely I, I like the word resonate when it comes to stories. 
what you were saying about you hear someone else's story and then something about it, you know, you connect with it emotionally. Yeah, I think that like resonate is exactly that experience to me. Yeah, yeah. You resonate with it. You connect with stories. The other half of the question, the data part, I think that's that's a super interesting one because I feel like data is both such a new concept in that like we've only started to record and gather such massive amounts of data in the last few decades. But at the same time, I think we as humans have always collected data, like even before machines started automating data collection, we used to gather data for the census. And that's not just like the last century or two. That's like, I think there's civilizations going back in history that have recorded census data in different ways. And that's how they came up with their writing systems. And so I don't think I have as clear of like, this is the role of data to humans, but I think data is a way for us to understand both ourselves and our surroundings. And in that sense, I guess like it's very similar in that they're both ways for us to understand our lives and the context of our lives. But I think from different angles, I feel like stories are a more emotional approach and data is obviously kind of the numbers approach. I don't want to say that the data part is like lacking emotion, but it's definitely, I think when we first hear the two, it feels like they're on two opposite spectrums, but also doing very similar things. Yeah, I think for me, when I think about data, I think more about science, sort of like, trying to make things as objective as possible. Like we can, we might have different emotional reactions to the same story, but hopefully we could look at the same data and at least agree like, okay, we can agree on some facts about the data. Like this number is this much bigger than this number. Things like that. Things that are sort of not subject to interpretation. I think that's a really good point. And this is so funny because can you tell that a lot of the data sets I've worked with are like more on the humanities side? And that's I just think yeah, about yeah. <laughs> But you're absolutely right. Like scientific visualization were some of the first visualizations. And so there's a huge, huge role that data and data visualization plays in science. I did want to go on a slight tangent about data as fact, but I think you had something more that you were going to say. I think I was also going to go on a small tangent. (laughs) But Okay, I'll, I'll do my, I think mine will be quick. So I think part of the reason that I think about data in terms of science is that um, my dad's a scientist, like that's his actual job. He's a PhD researcher at UCLA. He does virology and immunology. He does research in virology, which until last year was a super boring job for your dad to have. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> your dad's a virologist? Oh my God. <laughs> But for him, I mean, it's really all about, he'll talk about like how many logs reduction, which means like, you know, if, if he's working on some sort of like, I, literally he does re- vaccine research, not for COVID, but for, for other diseases and viruses and things. And that's like, to him, the data is all about like, he's got to do an experiment and then he wants to see a certain factor of reduction in, you know, whatever outcome. And I think to him, the, the storytelling aspect is very secondary to the data aspect. Like the story is really just like, if you take this vaccine that we've developed, then it can prevent you from getting this really bad outcome for whatever disease. And the data is really just about, well, how effective actually is it numerically? But that's his field of work, right? There's there's many different fields of work, and some of them I think are more or less, benefit more or less from the storytelling aspect of data. So end of tangent. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that was such a great tangent. I think I actually think of all data as as soon as you use data to communicate, I think of it as some form of a story. And I feel like when I say stories in relation to data, it doesn't have to be like a New York Times big scroll for 10,000 pixels or 20,000 pixels sort of big data story. Sometimes I think a data story is a one sentence, like, like what you had your example with your dad, which is this data tells us that this vaccine will prevent bad things. And I, I actually think that's a one one line story, one sentence story. And so I think I think the exciting thing about data is that the full potential of it is, I mean, like we have so many companies that just gather data for this 
like sake of gathering data. But I think the full power of it is in the fact that it communicates and that it has the potential to convince people of one outlook or another. And actually, maybe this ties into the tangent I was going to go on about data and fact and truth. And I think I'm going to put like a disclaimer that I'm coming more from like the data sets from the humanities that I've worked with a lot. And I'm not going to claim to like know scientific data uh, because that's not my field. In scientific data, actually, I could probably say in scientific data, I can feel pretty confident about saying like, I can trust this data because I mean, the scientific process is so rigorous that I can feel pretty confident in saying like, I can trust this data set to be fact. But one of the things that I try to say is there's like kind of a balance that we need to strike, especially with data literacy with the public, which is there's a gradient of how much you can trust the data set, right? Like a data set from a researcher like your dad, and actually my dad is also a scientific researcher, so that's cool. A data set from both of our dads, we could probably put really good confidence in because it's probably been vetted in the research papers they write. They probably write down exactly the, well, not probably, they for sure write the exact methodology and like all of the different decisions that they made. So we can feel really confident in that. But data sets aren't perfect, right? Like Far from it. (laughs) And I think the one thing that I want to dispel is this immediate trust in a data set that a lot of people have or immediate trust in a chart or visualization because it has data. Because I think a lot of people think of data and charts as logical and there must be no, they're like robotic and not have any mistakes. When the reality is like data sets are gathered by humans and they're they're full of bias from how it was collected to how people chose to visualize it. And so the one thing that I ask, especially especially when we, well, the one thing I always ask is that we always look at charts with a critical eye and first think about the first layer being like, what is it telling us? And then the second layer being like, trying to find the methodology section of each chart being like, where did they get this data? How did they collect it? What they did do when they made all of the decisions for visualization? And then kind of think about like, what was the goal that the person had for this data set? And just thinking critically about all of that before making the decision of like, or even before like sharing it, you know, I want to say that most of the charts and visualizations out there are trustworthy, made by human beings with good intentions, but even like human beings with good intentions might make mistakes, right? So before like default trusting a data or visualization, just uh, do a little bit of research. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a story about that as it happens. So for the first 27 years of my life, I did not drink alcohol at all, like all the way through college and not for any like religious reasons. I was mainly just out of stubbornness, if I'm honest. That's a separate story. But basically, this is just how I've been my whole life. And at some point, a friend sent me an article that linked to some data visualizations and data to go along with them. And it was some papers that basically suggested that if you wanted to have like optimal like heart outcomes for males, it was like one to two drinks per day, like moderation, you know, just one to two drinks, not like over the course of a week averaged out to be, you know, seven or eight, that was bad. But like one to two per day tops was better than zero per day. And they had a graph where it was like, you could see a curve of like incidence of, I think it was uh, heart disease. And it was like one to two was pretty low. And then three to four was higher and five to six was higher. But actually zero was higher than one to two. And I was like, this is so weird. I don't know why this would be. I mean, I've heard about like maybe alcohol like slows your heart down a little bit. Maybe that's good for it. Um, I couldn't figure out why this was. And I, I tried to read through the methodology and stuff like that and try to see if there's anything wrong with it. And then I went to Mayo Clinic and Harvard and like all these NIH, all these places had the same study, like it had been replicated and same outcomes. And I was like, maybe this is real. Maybe I'm I, like, I don't want to be hurting myself just for pure stubbornness. So I mean, that was the story that the data told me was that I was 
you know, I was making a bad health decision by not drinking at all and that I should actually be drinking in moderation instead. So I was like, all right, well, I believe in science. I'm going to change. I'm going to start drinking in moderation. So I was, <laughs> I was dieting at the time. So I was like, like low carbohydrate. So I was like, well, what's, what's something I can drink that doesn't have carbohydrates? And it's like whiskey. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to drink whiskey. <laughs> so <laughs> top notch taste. <laughs> yeah, right? I, I had my, my first drink with this, this friend who'd sent me the article and I was like, oh, this tastes awful. How did people do this? And he's like, well, I used to not like whiskey. And then I drank it every day for two weeks. And uh, now I like whiskey. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to do that. And <laughs> so I did every day. I just have a drink of whiskey and Eventually, um, you know, I got used to it and whatever. And now I just like to drink still in moderation. But now the funny part is that I want to say it was like a year or more after this, somebody published a paper that was, I don't want to say re a rebuttal, but it was an explanation for why those other studies had come to that conclusion. And to your point, it was, I mean, again, a very plausible story for how they'd gotten it wrong. And it was so interesting because the explanation was that those studies had not thought to control for other factors besides how much people were drinking. In other words, if you're drinking zero drinks per day, why are you drinking zero drinks per day? Is it because you've just decided to, like me, which is kind of what I assumed, that was the narrative I told myself, is everybody's like me in this study, or is it because your doctor said, you have serious <laughs> health problems, you have to stop drinking? Yeah. <laughs> and of course that group is gonna have worse health outcomes than, than you know people whose doctors have not told them they have to stop drinking. In fact, thinking about it, there's there was probably quite a few people in that zero group who used to be in the seven to eight or eight to nine or nine to 10 drinks per day group, and then their doctor said, you gotta you got a cold turkey, you know, cut it out completely. So it's just interesting how, you know, just looking at my own narrative of, oh, I'm making a bad health choice, looking at the same data. And, and you know, in this case, to your point, I, I will assume that the data was valid, that it was not misleading in any way. I mean, it might have been intentionally misleading by the office of the study, but I don't want to presume that. Although I think I did remember seeing in the rebuttal piece something about like alcohol companies funding these studies. So maybe it was. But let's assume that the data was valid. Like this is still a way that you can tell a story that's missing important information that would lead to a completely different narrative if if that information were present, you know, from the get-go. So I think I think that really reinforces your point. Like I, I definitely have had that experience myself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but in your story, it's that you did you did go do your due diligence because you were like, hmm, this sounds kind of sus. Like what's <laughs> well, going on? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I ideally I I could have <laughs> at the at the time, right? When I read the initial studies, like noticed that or like asked that question myself instead of, you know, waiting for the rebuttal article a year or so later. Yeah, but I'm not trying to counter myself, but like, you know, you know what this reminds me of it? Like, it reminds me of The Good Place. I don't know if spoilers are okay. It's been, it's uh -oh. been like a year, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so there's going to be spoilers right here. This is my spoiler tag warning. I think there's something really interesting from the story that you told, which is you did the absolute best that you can, like that any of us can ask for. And still, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And still like you didn't get quite to the bottom of it. And so I guess my edit to my previous statement is like, do the best you can. But obviously, there's, there's, you know, hundreds of charts that will come across in just like one year, and you can't, you, you can't possibly have the time to go look into every single one of them. But just like have a critical eye. It just reminds me of like, there's just so many things fine for our attention these days. Uh, yeah. Well, and also, yeah, I, I guess it's, it's a good point that like, you know, you can't really beat yourself up over not seeing something that was there in the data, you know, otherwise you're going back and looking like Isaac Newton, what a moron, didn't see relativity <laughs> in the data, you know. <laughs> yeah. I want to go back to something you said earlier about the ability for data visualization to persuade. So, I have admittedly not tried this on people who are not already persuaded by this, but one of my favorite data visualizations or, or one of the ones that I had a really strong emotional connection to was this XKCD one. Uh, you mentioned the like scrolling pixels thing. This is kind of a tamer version of that. I, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. The title of the visualization is a timeline of Earth's average temperature. And this is on a, on a pretty narrow subject, which is that I've heard people say, this is accurate, is that, you know, the earth has warmed and cooled, you know, for thousands of years. Who's to say 
that you know global warming is caused by humans like the, the current levels of global warming are caused by humans who's to say it's not just another one of these fluctuations that that have happened all the time and this visualization i found extremely persuasive as an answer to that question because basically what it is is it's a, a vertical visualization and it's just a graph of temperature over time and as you scroll down you're progressing through time so it starts like twenty-two thousand years ago and it just progresses all the way up to the present at the, at the bottom of the visualization up to the present so you start off just seeing okay we're at a little below minus four degrees celsius compared to like the I guess 1961 to 1990 average. And you scroll up and you see, okay, the line's, line's kind of getting up, going up, going up. And it goes down a little bit and it goes up a little bit and it goes down a little bit and goes up a little bit. And it goes up some more. And, and one of the things that you really get a visceral feel for, or, or I did when I was looking at it, was the slope of the line. Like, okay, yeah, it does go up and down. And you can kind of see how it goes up and down. It's like pretty gradual, pretty gradual, pretty gradual. And then you hit Industrial Revolution and it's just a zoom. It's just, it just, the slope is just like, absolutely nothing nothing that has been seen in the past 22,000 years it's just bears no resemblance to it it's just it's a hockey stick like when when previously it's been like sand dunes and at that point i am like okay it is true that the earth has warmed and cooled over time got it but nothing like this <laughs> and the idea that like oh well it's probably just another normal variation is just immediately for me it was just like yeah that doesn't make any sense and you could look at a spreadsheet of this data, but I would not have that takeaway from a spreadsheet of the data. Like to get the narrative and to get that takeaway, I think I need that visualization. It's hard to imagine getting it another way. Yeah, this is so well done. Like XKCD is so good. Sometimes like they put out something and I'm like, I do this for a living and you do this better than me. <laughs> like and you're and you're like one comic strip you do this. <laughs> this is beautiful I think from a storytelling perspective and I think the best thing about it is like not only is it extremely effective because it slowly takes you through the story of like 20,000 something years but it has a reveal like everything about it is super clear right I'm, I'm now getting into the tangent of why this like visualization is so amazing it's a very straightforward reading of the chart even without the legend at the top and it's really like good data visualizations should always have a good title and a good legend but even without the legend you kind of know what's going on right like it, you, if you just read that one title, you know, a timeline of Earth's average temperature. They use like colors that are what we're familiar with, meaning like warmer or colder. They have like these really clear, this really clear baseline and all of that. But I think the most beautiful thing that they did was the scroll. And the reason why we use scroll so often is like, it's, it's just a very intuitive way to tell stories, right? But the way that this one uses scroll is so good because it builds anticipation, right? The more, the more like you're scrolling, you're like, oh, okay. Like, oh yeah, there's like you said, the gradual increase and gradual increase. And then you get to the like bottom and it's like in that like bottom 50 pixels, you're like, bam, it's so good. It, and Another person whose storytelling I super admire because I think they have such a masterful use of pacing. And, and this, this I think of as like a very masterful, masterful use of pacing. Like they just... Yeah, that's the whole point, really. Is Mona, Mona Chalabi and her Instagram. So she, I feel like, has really done a beautiful job of taking advantage of like, what's that called? The swipe, the carousel or something, the carousel feature in Instagram. I don't, I, I don't actually have an Instagram. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So it's, it's basically like Instagram used to be, you post like one square image. Right. And then I think a few years back, they added this feature where you can, I think upload up to 10 images. And what it does is you can swipe horizontally for them. But when you swipe horizontally, what happens is like, it's a very seamless transition. And so what Mona and a lot of, I think what some data storytellers have done, and I guess a lot of people have taken advantage of is telling a very seamless horizontal story with the swipe. And so Mona will use that swipe, for example, to convey scale. And so 
I'm specifically talking about Mona's Instagram. So I dropped a link in there and it's just one of her Instagram posts. And it, this one is about, the title is of the 7,666 times that police officers killed people in the U.S. between 2013 and 2019, 25 resulted in a conviction. And there's like a little slice, a little, and her visualizations are always very, very straightforward. I think she usually does something that like, you know, People that might not have had like it's none of her charts are complex. Um, they like are very impactful. So there's and it says 25 resulted in a conviction. And there's like a tiny little sliver of a bar chart, and then 74 resulted in a charge but no conviction. And then it's a slightly like thicker bar chart, and then she has and dot dot dot. And then you have to scroll to the, you, you have to scroll, keep swiping. It says, keep swiping, keep swiping, keep swiping, keep swiping, keep swiping, keep swiping, keep swiping. <laughs> <laughs> and you swipe all the way to the end and it says 7,567 or 98.7% resulted in no charges whatsoever. So she's doing a very similar thing that the XKCD comic did, which is like building anticipation for the punchline of the story by making you scroll through. And I've seen her do this so many times so effectively. That was quite a tangent. I'm just in love with Mona's work. <laughs> well, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it is a great example of building anticipation. And also just, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think these two charts are very, yeah, you make a great point that they're doing the same kind of thing. Like you have this punchline and then it's the buildup to the punchline that makes it so much more effective than if you just had it in a spreadsheet or if you even if you just had it in a data viz that was all designed to fit on one screen where you're just looking at it all at once. Because on this one, yeah, you would see the bar chart, but it would look like basically there's just one bar on the chart and the other two would just be minuscule. Yeah, you couldn't even see them. They'd be like, oh, that's a that's a really big bar, which is not nearly as impactful as when you have to do the work to scroll all the way over. And then the reason that you want to scroll all the way over is that you don't know what the label of the last bar is until you get to the end. You're like, I want to I want to know what, what what is this one? <laughs> yeah. And I think you summarized it so well, like you, you, you put it together, I kind of missed the point, And then you summarized it for me, which is, at the end of the day, with data storytelling and data visualizations, what we want is for the person that read that uh, visualization, to remember the message that we're trying to communicate. And this sort of storytelling is like, it's very effective, because we had to do the, the work of swiping through or the work of scrolling through. And so that the payoff, we remember the payoff and we remember like, what is the most important part of the message to, to communicate. Okay, I, I actually want to go on a, a bit of a tangent about so there's this famous quote, apparently often attributed to Mark Twain, but perhaps not actually said by him, which is there's lies, damn lies and statistics. And often this is used to mean that, you know, you can use bad statistics or, or bad data to like bolster a weak argument and, and try to make sort of an emotional appeal seem more credible. And certainly, I think you could make the same case that people can can do this sort of thing with visualization. So this is like storytelling for evil, perhaps we can think of it that way. And I think this is this is something I've heard people use to criticize the idea of and they usually don't use the word storytelling, but they they usually see that making things more emotional, like trying to make an emotional connection around data is, I'm going to say, you know, in the extreme cases, maybe even some would say immoral, because it's like, we're trying to take something that starts out as objective and free of bias and pristine, and then we're, we're contorting it to fit our, our own worldview. And it's not just that we're telling a story, but we're trying to convince someone of something that maybe isn't there. What do you think about that? Yeah. So actually, before I answer that question, it's funny that you bring up how statistics lie, which I think is a is a book. There's now a book by Alberto Cairo called How Charts Lie. And so it covers a lot of what you just said. To answer that about how data is pristine and should not be marred by emotion, I want to say that Data is not pristine. <laughs> no data is pristine. Right. Because I think even to your point about that scientific experiment about alcohol consumption, they obviously, I mean, we can have a whole separate conversation about intent, but assuming good intent, they still 
had, they like had a blind spot of, they forgot to consider confounding factors. And that probably biased how they collected the data. Our scientist dads, I know they have the best of intentions, but they might have subconscious bias that affects how, what data they decide to collect. I mean, every, everybody has some biases, right? It's, it's a question of like, you know, how do, they, how do they manifest in that particular scenario? Yeah. Yeah. And if we want to say, well, machines, you know, like, like when we log data, like that must be perfect because machines are logging data. But who coded the machines? Humans coded the machines. And humans decided what information to collect and what information not to collect. And so I actually would start there, that data is never pristine and data is never, well, never is very strong, almost never pristine and almost never perfectly collected. Yeah. And I think, I think it's interesting how we construct like meta narratives about like how reliable data is. I think it's interesting that when I learned that these initial studies had been funded by alcohol companies, I'm immediately jumping to the conclusion, okay, you know, I've heard enough. Now I know this, these are all, you know, like that was my first reaction. I was like, oh, of course, they're just going to, I'm just assuming that like, yeah, they just managed to find strictly immoral scientists, you know, and they were all just like paid off to come up with a preconceived conclusion, which might be true, but it also might very well be true that like the alcohol companies funded the studies. And even if let's assume that the alcohol companies wanted to be as nefarious as possible and they only wanted to get a good outcome. Maybe what they were planning on doing is something like pulling funding if the study didn't go their way or discrediting it after the fact. But maybe the actual scientists, for all I know, were as objective as they could be. Like, the, you know, just they actually had good intentions. And just because that was their funders does not mean that the funders succeeded in convincing them to betray their scientific principles. I don't know that. I have no information on that one way or another. And yet the narrative that sort of forms in my mind about this piece of data, this information that, you know, the studies were funded by alcohol companies changes how, what I think about the data. It changes my interpretation of the data. It definitely influences it, which I think reinforces your point that, yeah, like data is innately not pristine as, as much as we might think that it is. It's not objective. There's bias in how it is collected and, and innately. And then the question just is by how much and how much does that matter? And that's kind of a squishy thing that maybe we don't like to think about when we're thinking about something as unsquishy as data. But yeah, I mean, it's absolutely a huge factor. Yeah. I'm not trying to be like, data is not perfect, so you should never trust it. It's kind of like what you said about there's a gradient of how much you can trust different data sets. And I think it's great that we have, we place such trust in data. I'm just asking for us to have critical, <laughs> be critical of, I think still trust, I think go off of the intention, go off of the assumption that the data was collected with good intentions, but be critical of it. And to go on to the point about like wrapping data in emotion and story, I really think that that depends on what the goal of the data visualization is. And so from a lot of, for example, for a lot of scientific visualizations, I don't think we need to wrap it in much of a story. It might just be a one-line takeaway, the one-line story. Because I think in scientific discoveries, I think the goal of the visualization is to just communicate that discovery. You're not trying to convince anyone of anything I presume, ideally, and it's that then that data set will then be tested in further experiments. But I think in a lot of the work that I've done, where it is communicating certain data findings to the public, the emotion part is really important for the reasons that we've talked about before, which is, I actually learned this from my Hamilton project, which is that I think nobody remembers or will remember the numbers that I gave them or the figures and statistics that I gave them in a piece, but they will remember how that piece made them feel. And that's what's going to have a lasting impression in their minds. And so the way I think about a data story is that data and story are equally important. And data's role is to 
it's there for kind of kind of like large scale context, or it's there for giving like something solid to latch onto, if that makes sense. But it's also there to support the emotional. Not, not let's not say emotional, but it's there to support the main story that's trying to be told, and so I think they go hand in hand. And I do think it's like a almost like a 50-50 split of when a data story is done really well, we have both of those. We have the emotional kind of story part that maybe focuses on one or two data points, like one or two, maybe if the data set is about like a group of people, maybe the story part focuses in on one or two of those people so that we have some, something as readers, we have something emotional to connect to, but then the data gives the overarching context of that story and supports the story. Yeah. Yeah. I think support is a, is a, is a critical point there because going back to the very beginning, you, you mentioned that you know, storytelling is often like an oral tradition that's passed down from one group to another. And in those cases, in a lot of cases, it's just based on trust. It's like, I will trust you because you're my parents or because you're you know, an important member of the community. I don't necessarily need data to be convinced by what you're saying or, or to believe your story. But if it's a stranger, I don't necessarily have that innate trust. And so data can sort of, like you said, support the story that you're telling and, and make it more trustworthy because one of the uh, you know ideals of data is that it's it's something that is more objective and something that where I don't need as much trust. I don't need to take your word for it. I can look at this and say, well, as long as I think that the data is real and, and the data is trustworthy, then I understand the point or I, I believe the point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's talk about how to tell stories effectively. And this is where I'm, I'm very out of my element. I can enjoy a good data visualization, but I do not know how to create one. <laughs> so what advice do you have for folks about how to effectively tell stories with data? Ooh, that is a big question. Yeah. Well, so- <laughs> Just, you know, if you could just summarize in two minutes, that would be great. <laughs> that, is, that is something I'm still trying to figure out in my own work. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well we, could, we could make it more specific, maybe. What advice would you give to people who are just starting out? If they're like, I want to try and create data visualizations that tell good stories, what resources should I look into? Like, wh- how should I go about even learning about how to, how to do this effectively? Okay. So... I don't have like a step-by-step guide, but I'll try to go through like what was helpful for me. So I think to start with, okay, so uh, a little bit, I guess, about my background is I'm a software engineer and I kind of stumbled into data and data visualizations. You know, I'm a front-end developer that found D3, which is a JavaScript <laughs> library for data visualization, was like, whoa, this is so cool from like a math and art perspective. And then realized that data visualization was a whole field. And, and the reason why I give that context is because I used to not care at all about the story aspect of data visualization. I used to not care about at all about how effectively I was communicating the data. I was very much a like, as long as I had fun coding this, I don't care. And over time, working with clients, working with d- different data sets, I realized how important the story and and effectively telling it was. And in that journey, one of the books that was extremely helpful is actually, again, by Alberto Cairo. And it was his very first book called The Functional Art. Alberto is a journalist or was a journalist, now a professor. And so The Functional Art, what it tries to do is tries to kind of like condense the practice of data journalism. That book tried to condense kind of like the whole process of creating a data journalism piece. And it kind of breaks it down to kind of the information design aspect. How do you, what's kind of like the psychology behind um, visualizations and how we perceive them? How do you map data to different visuals in a very effective way. So it's very much about how do you design a single chart or or set of charts the most effective way from a design perspective. So that book helped me a lot to kind of think about the technical aspect of information design. And then the rest is like just looking at kind of like masters of their craft, right? Like I think Mona is such a good example of someone 
She just does such good data storytelling. The pudding oftentimes puts out amazing visual stories. Edward Tufte is, of course, a, a huge ah, name. Yes, Edward, Edward Tufte is a huge name. I think he has very strong opinions that may or may not translate to the web age. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. I, I didn't realize that he was a controversial figure in, in the data viz world. <laughs> I think, no, I think he has, from a design perspective, and I've only actually really read one of his books. So this is the disclaimer. But in general, what he talks about is really important. I think from like design perspective, like it's always really, I would say that start from what Tufti says, and then kind of like build your own opinions. Don't take what Edward Tufti says as like all of the rules to abide by is I guess what I, what I mean. Well, I mean, actually like what we've been talking about is kind of a good example of this. Cause I remember it's been a very long time since I read any of his stuff, but I remember him being really big on information density. So you can just look at the thing and not need to interact with it. And then just the more you look at it, the more information you get out of it, which is sort of separately a cool idea, but not necessarily ideal for storytelling. And actually, some of the examples that we talked through in this episode, I think would not work as well if they were more information dense. Yeah, I think it's that because especially his first books that he's most well known by, I think he wrote it in the 80s, which is a completely different landscape from now, right? I think all of the strong opinions he has makes a lot of sense in print. Maybe it's that in web, because we have more space where we can scroll for 10,000 pixels, or maybe it's that we have interactions. So secondary information that maybe we would have cut from a print graphic, we can now put into hovers um, for additional context. So there's things like that. I'm not trying to be like, I don't agree with Tufti. I think it's that and I think his books were really, really good. What a lot of the print graphics were doing poorly, he pointed them out. And I think that was really good in the 80s. It's just trying to take everything he says and plopping them into current, I think, might not you know, work out so well. And I think another thing is probably the biggest part that I personally don't agree with what he says is I think he and a few others believe very much in what you said about, you know, seeing a chart and not even, and it should be readable right away, or like it should be understandable right away, which to a certain point I agree with, but I think there's also a lot of really interesting, really complex data sets that do benefit very much from a more complex visualization that maybe cannot be understood by one glance. And maybe we do need to have a very comprehensive legend and a comprehensive way of how to read it. That can tell just as good of a story and just as nuanced of a story. I think it's just a very a much more interesting design challenge. Yeah, I could see that. Wow, we talked about a lot of topics. Anything else Anything else we should get to about data and storytelling before we uh, wrap up? I think we covered a lot about... I'm still trying to figure out if I've said everything I wanted to about how to effectively design data stories. I think we talked a lot about it throughout the episode. And it really... I think it's... the At the very basis, it's understand information and visualization design. Like there's some big faux pas that people can make when starting out with the design of visualization. So on top of the functional art, I want to also uh, mention Lisa Charlotte Ross runs an amazing blog at Data Wrapper. And she has like a, a subsection, they, they have a subsection called Data Wrapper Academy that actually talks a lot about the chart design and data visualization design. Highly recommend that one. So that's the basis of it. And I think then the layer on top of it is kind of once you get a good sense of how to design one standalone chart really well, then it's kind of like layering on the story and the narrative of like multiple charts and how do they interact with each other. And then I think on top of that is like, I think the pacing between all of these different charts. And, and that kind of goes back into that XKCD comic, Mona's Instagram, uh, the pudding for, I haven't checked in 
in a while, but the pudding for a while was doing amazing Instagram posts too. That's very well paced. I think the pudding in general has like very well paced visual stories in terms of just like getting inspiration for data narratives. New York time has always been top notch. I think there is a South morning China post, I think, no, 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 no. Sorry. Reuters was Reuters Asia for a while was doing amazing stories. So there's a lot of these kind of newsrooms. And then I really enjoy subscribing to flowingdata.com, which is Nathan Yao's blog. And he has a newsletter that comes out every few weeks or every few days that just kind of collects all of the data visualizations that he's seen or data stories that he's seen. So that kind of helps give a good sampling of the kind of data stories that are out there. And I think once you start to just like see many of them, you kind of start picking up like, oh, this thing that this data story did was really effective. Oh, this thing they did was not as effective. And you kind of start building your own sense of what's effective or not. Nice. That makes sense. And wow, that is a ton of great resources. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know what to do for picks anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, then let's let's wrap up our data and storytelling conversation there. And yeah, let's move on to, to a couple of picks. Uh, I guess I, I could start because I thought of this one midway through the episode and I realized that it's a, it's a great one to talk about, which is a book by Dan, I think it's Ariely. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Uh, it's called Predictably Irrational. And it really ties into some of the stuff we were talking about earlier about you can take the same data and then like draw different conclusions from it. This one's sort of about surprising data where they've done lots of experiments. This is sort of a recurring theme in the book is doing an experiment where you would look at the experiment. You're like, I know how that's going to turn out. And then it totally turns out differently than that. Or like the, the outcomes are very surprising. And they all have to do with how like humans respond to situations. So it was like, for example, they tried setting up a desk outside, like, I don't know, somewhere on a college campus with a big pile of candy on it. And then they tried putting signs up that that charged different prices for the candy. So it was like five cents per piece of candy, 10 cents per piece of candy, 50 cents or free. And they also tried it with different types of candy. And it was really surprising, you know, if you were to guess like, oh, like what proportions of people took the free candy? What proportions of people, you know, bought the candy at five cents, 10 cents, one cent? What did the effect of like the type of candy have on it? And can I, can I, can I guess, can I take a guess and see if sure. it's right or wrong? I'm going to guess it's like a, like a bell curve where there's like fewer people that took it at free and more people that took it at like 10 cents or somewhere in the middle. And then fewer people for 50 cents. As I recall, okay, so it's uh, I'm, I'm going to like potentially embarrass myself because it's been like more than a year since I read the book. But <laughs> as I recall, the surprising outcome of that one was that I think there were two. So one was it had to do with like the quality of the candy. So I think they did some like higher end chocolates versus some lower end chocolates. And for those, the price point had something to do with like people's perceived value of the chocolates, like like went up and down depending on like, oh, this is like expensive and that's a relatively expensive and that's appropriate because it's a higher end chocolate versus if it was like lower price maybe people were skeptical or something like that but the really interesting one was definitely the lower the price the more people would tend to buy on average but not when you got down to free when you got down to free theoretically you might say oh well someone will just walk by and just load the entire thing into their backpack but this is where you get into like it's in public so it's like there's a social aspect like you don't want to be the jerk who walks up to the free candy table and just pot, you know load up your backpack so nobody would do that nobody would take infinite people would actually take less of the free ones like people would usually just take i think it was like one or two or something like that and you know that was it just because that was the social understanding of what you're supposed to do in that situation, right? So it was interesting. So lots of stuff like that. I I, I don't remember the, please don't quote me on that, anyone, because I don't, like I said, it's been a while since I read the book. But but it was just a lot of interesting little experiments like that. And yeah, it's it was just all the stuff we've been talking about reminded me of that book. How about you? How about some picks? Oh, man, you bought me so much time and I'm still like trying to figure out. Well, I'll just do picks based on what I've been doing. So the first thing is uh, the grad school program I'm, is called ITP, NYU, and it is a fantastically fun place. It's like makerspace meets art-ish, <laughs> um, and I highly recommend just checking out 
I don't even know what's like a good entry point. So Dan Schiffman, who wrote Nature of Code, I recommend that book too. He has a YouTube channel called Coding Train. He's one of the professors at ITP. And ITP has a semester and show, the winter show and the spring show, where like the students show their projects. And Dan always live streams that. So that might be a good place to get into it. Just kind of like the range of wacky to interesting projects that come out of it. Super fun. I think a lot of people might enjoy it. That would be my first pick. The second one is, oh man, I've been using this pick everywhere, but I don't care. I am such a fan of my former studio mates, Amy. She goes by Sailor HG online. Okay, yeah, I've seen that Twitter account. Yeah, and Alice uh, and her Twitter and Instagram are by Alice Lee. And they've been collaborating this past year on several things. Actually, all of their collaborations are great and you should check them out. But uh, the one that I'm such a fan of is they've been making Animal Crossing planters, ceramic Animal Crossing planters from scratch. And so they've 3D model it and then they 3D print it and then they like cast it. And then they, the process called like slip casting, then they paint it, then they fire it. And they have 18 different Animal Crossing characters and i can't remember what number they're on for reveal and revealing it it is amazing and everyone should check them out animal crossing planters awesome wow very cool okay do you have any more picks like maybe a, a hypothetical book you might be uh you know it might have written well i i already talked about the book that's earlier. true that's true <laughs> Right. Fair, enough, fair enough. Oh, I guess I'll I'll say uh, I do have for anyone that's interested in uh, learning D three, the JavaScript library. I do have an introduction to D three course on front end masters, and the way I summarize it is: this is how I wish I wish I was taught when I was starting out with D three. Nice. <laughs> Very cool. And I'm a big fan of front end masters, not just because I have two courses on there, but <laughs> you do, you do also, have courses yeah. on there. But I, I have not watched your course on there, but I bet it's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Surely, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was really fun to talk through all these concepts. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed all of our tangents. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> right. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye.